and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am Sarah, and I've got Darcy as my co-host today. How are you doing today, Darcy? I'm doing pretty good. I had a really tough workout today, and I am exhausted. But what, what did you do? Out of the way. Uh, so I have, I think I've talked about before, I have like a bike, an indoor bike trainer, and I'm doing a program, and it was like a, it was an hour and 45 minutes today of, of just pure pain. Pain? Um, yeah, so, so I promptly ate half of a pizza after I finished because nice. I burned like almost 900 cal- calories. You deserve so I'm it. ready. I'm ready to uh, talk about some crime here. Awesome. Well, if you didn't know, this is the podcast where we talk about strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that really make you think. Um, we like to talk about all the weird, crazy, and bizarre details. And if it's pro- vocative as well. We are going to talk about it on this show. Today we're going to start it off um, talking about some stuff that's current in the news today and then we're going to jump into some cases from the 30s. We're going to take it back a little bit today. First and foremost, I've got this couple that passed away in Fiji. So it was a Texas couple and evidently this is an article from boston.com and it says couple who mysteriously died in Fiji texted family that they'd been throwing up for eight hours. Yikes. So the Texas couple had been planning a vacation to Fiji, relaxing on the palm tree-lined beaches, maybe snorkeling with manta rays or hiking in the National Heritage Park. Excursions like this had become a tradition for them. They had posted previous vacation photos from Cabo and Hawaii and tried to travel together about once a year. Last month, David and Michelle Paul from Fort Worth, Texas, boarded the family dog and said what they thought were temporary goodbyes to their two-year-old son and David's daughter from a previous relationship. They then hopped a plane bound for South Pacific Adventure, according to the station. Soon after the couple arrived in Fiji, they became gravely ill, and despite medical treatment, their symptoms continued to worsen. A Facebook user appearing to be David's mother wrote this week that the couple had been con- uh, had contracted a virus, and days later both had died. Oh my gosh. A U.S. Department of State official confirmed the deaths of Michelle and David Paul in Fiji and offered condolences to the couple's families. But the circumstances surrounding their vacation and the mysterious ailment that turned their trip to tragedy remain mostly a mystery. Where did they go? What did they do? And perhaps most importantly, what disease could the couple have been exposed to? Early on, Michelle texted her parents telling them that she and her husband had fallen ill. We are both going to the doctor now, the 35-year-old wrote in a series of text messages later obtained by ABC News. We have been throwing up for eight hours. Dave has diarrhea. My hands are numb. We will text when we can. After returning from the clinic, she wrote, they gave us fluids and an anti-nausea drip. They gave us electrolyte packets and anti-nausea pills. We still don't feel 100%, hmm. she added. According to the ABC News station, they, she said, I'm going to rest in our room. Michelle died May 25th. Two days later, her 37-year-old husband was dead, too. After their death, Fiji's Ministry of Health and Medical Services said in a seemingly unrelated statement that it has been monitoring communication, or excuse me, it has been monitoring communicable diseases, including influenza and other things. Scary. But the really terrifying thing is they will not release the bodies to go home for a burial until they figure out what caused the death. Wow. And then also, the ministry said a small number of healthcare professionals who had come into close contact with the couple are being monitored for symptoms but are currently well. So they sort of quarantined the people that had worked with this couple in an effort to kind of figure out what the heck is going on. That's crazy. That's so scary. Yeah. So, like, for something like that, when she said my hands are numb and that they'd been throwing up for eight hours, to me, that speaks to poisoning, not influenza. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. 
certainly like diarrhea and vomiting. So like their treatment does make sense in the sense that they were just trying to get fluids back in them. Right. Because they were very severely dehydrated, but they didn't actually it doesn't seem like they actually treated anything. They just kind of treated the symptoms that they could identify. Right. But I've but, heard yeah, so I many forensic really... files cases where people were poisoned with arsenic or with, what is that, coolant fluid, uh, antifreeze. And, antifreeze, yeah. And they had similar type symptoms where they had numbness and extremities, a throwing up, diarrhea, nausea, all kinds of other symptoms that were in a similar sort of way. And granted, we don't know all the details in this particular case, but to me, this sounds like this couple, for them to pass away that quickly with mm-hmm. those types of symptoms says to me poisoning. And it could be some kind of like foodborne illness too, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things like when you travel, our immune systems aren't, you know, used to or aren't acclimated to eating foods in foreign countries like that. You know, I mean, it's the same reason they say don't drink water in Mexico because our immune system isn't built for that. Right. So it could be something like that too. It might not necessarily be nefarious, but it, it's interesting. But it sounds like they are, at least the Fijian authorities are taking a really proactive approach to it as opposed to what's going on in the Dominican Republic. Have you been reading about well, this? I, and first of all, just before we move on to that next topic, I, I'm looking forward to here. Well, not looking forward, but I'm, I'd be very interested to hear the autopsy results of that couple in Fiji once those come in. And granted, those take a while to come in, usually a week or two at least before autopsy results yeah. come in for a situation like that. But I'd be very interested to hear what the results of that are. But yes, I have heard of these other cases in the Dominican Republic. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what's going on there. So there have been three Americans that have died at the same resort in the in the Dominican Republic. It's at the Grand Bahia or Bahia Principe Hotel and it's in La Romana. That there's a couple that they went and they were from they were just recently engaged. A Maryland couple was found dead at this hotel at this uh, resort in the Dominican Republic. They were found dead, I believe, the same day in their hotel room. So Edward Nathaniel Holmes, 63, and Cynthia Ann Day, 49. The authorities initially said that they both died from respiratory disorders. And then it came out that an American woman also has died from respiratory failure in her Dominican Republic hotel room at that same resort. Oh my God. So now we have three people. So this is Miranda Schaup Werner. She was 49, 41. So we have three people who are dying supposedly of respiratory failure in the same hotel resort. And there's not a whole lot of information coming out about this. So apparently they were all pretty healthy. Schaup Werner, Miranda Schaup Werner, Died suddenly and inexplicably in her hotel room this after arriving and having a drink year old. from the in-room mini bar. Yeah, she's forty-one. She was healthy before she died. She had arrived in the Dominican Republic the same day that she died. Her husband Daniel Werner was with her when she began experiencing physical distress and collapsed. And so her autopsy showed that she died of respiratory and pulmonary edema, wow. according to the hotel and. An autopsy performed on the couple also determined that they died of the same causes, according to the Dominican Republic National Police. The family, the representative for Miranda Schaup Werner said that no toxicology report was done as part of the cause of death inquiry, nor were Mrs. Sharp Schaup Werner's glass and drink tested. Spokesperson for the hotel declined, declined to comment further on Miranda's death. 
So do people think that they were poisoned or like what? Well, it could be something like when, when I hear respiratory, I'm wondering if there's like something like mold or something in the hotel rooms, oh. but you're not hearing about anybody else getting sick. Right. Or, so just, you know, or anybody, cause it's just, it's just Americans. And so the original article I had pulled up also is about another couple who said they got ill at the same resort about a year ago. So Caitlin Null said she and her boyfriend, Tom Schwander, became sick while on vacation at the Grand Bahia Principe Hotel in June 2018. She said, as soon as we came back to the room, we noticed it smelled like somebody had dumped paint everywhere. We were drooling excessively. My eyes would not stop watering. The mysterious symptoms persisted even after the couple changed hotel rooms. That night, we both woke up soaked in sweat at like four in the morning and kind of terrified, and we booked a flight home before the sun came up. Wow. So she says that um, after they returned to Colorado, they saw a doctor who said they were likely experiencing poisoning from organophosphate, a form of insecticide, which Null said she believes were being used on the plants around the the resort. Oh, interesting. yeah, and and Null said they sued the Grand Bahia Principe La Romana after the hotel refused to reveal the chemical used on its ground or refund their money, but the case is apparently sold in local courts, which I don't think that is that's too surprising um, when you're dealing with like an international lawsuit or anything like that. But the U.S. State Department said they're actively monitoring the deaths, and the official for the State Department said at this point we are not aware of any connection between these incidents, which I think is just them covering just your crazy ass. that you would yeah like I, well I mean that's the State Department that's not even like them trying to cover that up that's just. Right, but they have have to be very conservative when they're saying stuff like that because, number one, they don't want people to panic and start, Mm -hmm. you know, not going to these countries because we have to preserve relations with some of the places that we're going to and they don't want to Mm -hmm. suddenly have a mass exodus and no one wants to go to these places because people are making money, obviously, on travel and hotels and things like that. But Right, um, it's a big part of their economy. Plus, you know, just they don't want to create widespread panic anyway. Right. Interesting. It's interesting. And it's like, it's, it's interesting because the countries seem to be handling it pretty differently between what's happening in Fiji and the DR. Yeah. I'm just, I'd be interested to wait and hear the autopsy reports from Fiji and see what actually comes out. Moving on to the regular topics for the day, we are kind of taking a step back in time to the 1930s, a very different time in U.S. history. The topic that I have chosen for today is the Papin sisters. Very interesting case. This is a French case, actually. So I'm taking it back in time and across the ocean. So Christine and Leah Papin, or Papin, or Papin, or however you want to say it, I've heard it pronounced no less than three different ways by three different podcasts. (laughs) So I'm going to say Papin, but they were two French sisters who were live-in maids, and they were convicted of murdering their employer's wife and daughter in France on February the 2nd, 1933. The murder had significant influence on French intellectuals who sought to analyze it, and it was thought to be somewhat symbolic of a kind of a class struggle type situation um, that was kind of underway there and across the globe as well. The case has also been the basis of a number of publications, plays, films, essays, songs, artwork, books, etc., etc. 
It's a very, very interesting case. The life of these two young ladies, they were born in Le Mans, France, to Clemence Deray and Gustave Papin. They came from a troubled family, though. So, essentially, while their parents were first dating, it was rumored that the mother was having an affair with her employer. Oh. Um, Yeah. So, that kind of created a little bit of tension there. When she became pregnant... Gustave married her October 1901. So he was like, okay, I get that I've heard you're having an affair, um, but I'm going to go ahead and marry you anyway. Five months later, Clemence gave birth to daughter Amelia. Gustave, suspecting that his wife was still having an affair with her employer, found a job in another city and announced the family was going to move. So he was like, okay, I get it. I think you're still seeing this person. I'm going to move you away from him. That way you won't be tempted any further and we can build this family together. But the mom declared she would rather commit suicide than leave Le Mans. Not a great foundation for a marriage, I think. So at that point, the marriage began to very drastically deteriorate and Gustav began to drink heavily. When mm. Emilia was nine or ten years old, Clemence sent her to the Bon Pasteur Catholic Orphanage, where it was discovered that Gustav had raped her. So we have some incest going on, as well as the severe abuse, the alcoholism, and other like the infidelity and everything else that seems to be going on in this family. This was the first daughter in that family, Emilia, and she later joined the convent and became a nun. So she was like, mm. "I'm getting the fuck out of here." I can't deal with this, which I do not blame her. It sounds like an awful home situation that was punctuated by just some terrible, terrible events. And it seems like being in a convent would be a peaceful escape from all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Christine, the middle sister, was born March 8th, 1905, and given to her paternal aunt and uncle soon after birth. Again, probably a better situation from her than staying with mom and dad. She lived happily with them for seven years before entering the Catholic orphanage where she received the calling to become a nun as well. However, Clemence forbade this, instead placing her into employment. She was like, no, you're not going to become a nun. I'm not going to make any money off that. You need to make some money for me. Oh, shit. Yeah. And that was, I think, a common practice back then because the parents were like, all right, I've got daughters. They're not going to do anything but create trouble so I'm going to put them to work and they're going to make money and just for children in general I think back in that time it was still widely accepted that they were going to be wage earners for the family after a certain point and that was very important to help the lower classes survive because they were not making much money at all. Christine the middle daughter was described as a hardworking young lady she was a good cook and could however and this is, you know, a sign perhaps of something to come, but she was considered insubordinate at times. Leah, the youngest daughter, was born September 15th, 1911, and soon after that was given also to her maternal uncle, with whom she remained until he died. So clearly he didn't live that long. After her uncle passed away, she too was sent to the Catholic orphanage until about the age of 15, when she also could be employed. So it seems as though the orphanage, you know, they were these children were farmed out, until mm-hmm. about you know, teenage years, 14, 15, and then they were sent to be workers, either maids or cooks or nannies or whatever the case may be. Uh, so like, all three of them left the convent around the age of 15? No, the uh, the oldest daughter was allowed to stay and become a nun. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she stayed there. However, the younger two sisters were taken out of there at the age of about 14, 15 and, and forced to, to work. Leah, the youngest daughter, was described as quiet, introverted, but obedient. She was considered less intelligent than her older sister, Christine. 
Uh, the sisters then worked as maids in various homes around the Lamont area and preferred to work together whenever possible, which I don't really blame them given the circumstances involved. I think, you know, you'd want to be close to family if you're not allowed to be at home with your family. You'd probably want to be with sure. a family member if possible. In 1926, Christine and Leah found live-in positions as maids for a family in or for the Lancelin family. M. Rene Lancelin, a retired solicitor, his wife, Leone, and his daughter, Genevieve, lived in the house. Their older daughter was married and had since moved out. The other daughter, Genevieve, was a single and still living at home, which I believe was also common at that time period in this area as well. Some years, and for the Duggars. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Some years after Leah and, and Christine started working for the family, they... Mother in the family, Madame Leone, developed depression and the girls became the target of her mental illness. The abuse worsened to the point where she would slam the girls' heads against the wall, according to Jesus claims. Christ. It seems as though the girls, though, did not take this sitting down or laying down or whatever. They, they decided they were going to fight back. And you got to wonder how many years of this type of abuse these girls suffered before they got to the breaking point. And I right. think... Back then, in the sort of situation that these girls were in, it was expected that they were to get up first thing in the morning before the sun rose and clean the house, prepare the meals, iron, do the laundry. Like, it was a never-ending list of tasks that young ladies as maids and housekeepers and cooks were expected to perform, and they were supposed to pretty much be on call 24-7. And they were allowed... Yeah, I kind of imagine it like Cinderella. Yeah. They were allowed very little time off, uh, maybe one day a week or a half day a week, something of that um, nature. Wow. However, on the evening of Thursday, February 2nd, 1933, the father, Monsieur Lancelin, was supposed to meet Madame Leon and Genevieve for dinner at the home of a family friend. They had been out shopping that day and were supposed to meet him later for sort of this dinner. When they returned home that afternoon, there were no lights on in the house. The Papine sisters explained to Madame Lancelin that the power outage, that there was a power outage that had been caused by Christine plugging in a faulty iron. And I guess there was evidence that she had taken this particular iron in for repairs on multiple occasions. However... The mom, Madame Lancelin, became irate and began to assault the sisters on the first floor landing when she found out that the power was out. Christine lunged at Genevieve and gouged her eyes out. Leah joined Whoa. in the struggle and attacked Madame Lancelin, gouging her eyes out as ordered by Christine. Christine that then, escalated quickly. Yeah. So there was somewhat of a struggle, and then all of a sudden there was eyes being gouged out. Christine then ran downstairs to the kitchen where she was, uh, retrieved a knife and a hammer, bringing both weapons upstairs where the sisters continued their attack. At some point, one of the sisters grabbed a heavy pewter pitcher and used it to strike both the women in the head. Experts who later responded to the scene estimated the attack lasted approximately 30 minutes. Holy shit. I That's just, such a long time. Right. I just don't see how you could possibly attack someone for that long. I mean, once they're dead, like... You'd stop. But evidently there was a lot of pent-up passion, anger, um, violence within these two young ladies. Well, and they clearly had a variety of weapons. So maybe they were yes. just making the rounds. Ugh. Knife to pitcher to hammer to... Right, but they gouged these women's eyes out with their bare fucking hands. Yeah, but I bet you... Horrifying. I mean, that probably didn't kill them, though. No. 
which is even more that horrifying. That just meant they didn't know what was going to hit them next. No. Sometime Christ. later, Monsieur Lancelin returned home to find the house dark, as well as his wife had earlier done. He assumed that his wife and daughter had already left for the dinner party and proceeded to the party himself. When he arrived at the home of his friend, he found that the family was not there either. He then returned to his residence with his son-in-law, where they discovered the entire house still dark except for light in the Papin, in the Papin sister's room. The front door was bolted shut from the inside, so they were unable to enter the house. The two men found this suspicious and went to the local police station to summon up help from an officer. Can you imagine? Your first thought was probably that something terrible happened, but not necessarily that the housekeeper did it. Right. Together with the policemen, they responded to the home, where the policemen made entry by climbing over the garden wall. Once inside, they found the bodies of Madame Lancelin and her daughter Genevieve. They had both been bludgeoned and stabbed to the point of being unrecognizable. Wow. The mom's eyes had been gouged out and were found in the folds of the scarf around her neck. Oh, my. One of the daughter's eyes was found under her body and another on the stairs nearby. Thinking that the sisters had met the same fate, the policeman continued upstairs only to find the door to the Papine sisters' room locked. After the officer knocked but received no response, he summoned a locksmith to open the door. Inside, he found the Papine sisters naked in bed together with a bloody hammer with hair still clinging to it on a chair nearby. Upon questioning, the sisters immediately confessed to the killing. So there was no denying it. There was no, you know, we didn't do it. We're victims. They basically were just there and ready to go. You had to wonder what they were thinking and doing this whole time. You know what I mean? Why, and why were they naked in bed with each other? Well, like, I know that that's, like, the least of the concerns here, but that's one of those things that just sticks out, and it's like, what? There's some speculation with respect to that as well, uh, that these sisters had some sort of an incestuous relationship with one another, that this unhealthy relationship had developed as a result of the abuse that they suffered and neglect and, and perhaps even some, some of the situation from their home life as well with their father and mother, because clearly mental illness and a number of other problems were genetic factors within their own home. Sure. Wow. Um, The sisters were placed in prison and separated from each other at that point. And then Christine became extremely distressed because she could not see her sister and she started acting out as a result. At one point, prison officials relented and allowed the two sisters to meet. Christine reportedly threw herself at Leah, unbuttoning her blouse, begging her to please say yes, suggesting an incestual sexual relationship. What? Yeah. So in July 1933, Christine experienced a fit or an episode in which she tried to gouge her own eyes out and had to be put in a straitjacket. She then made a statement to the investigating magistrate in which she said on the day of the murder, she had experienced an episode like the one she had in prison and was... This had precipitated the murders. So to me, this is who knows what was going on here. Part of me says she planned it as a fake sort of thing so that she could use it as some sort of a defense in the trial. Um, Oh, like the second one? Yeah. Well, she faked the first one or faked the second one so that she could say she had something similar to that during the first killing and then claim insanity and and be able to get off or have her sentence reduced because she had period of temporary insanity. The court then appointed a number of doctors to administer some tests and evaluations to determine the mental state of these two girls. They Do we know how they, how old they were at like this time of the trial? Um, let's see here. Or so the the, it happened 33. They were born in 05. 
and 11. Okay. So oh, 20s. Okay. So in their 20s? Maybe early 30s. Court appointed three doctors, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, and they concluded that the sisters had no pathological mental disorders and deemed them sane. Although, yeah. medical testimony given during the trial noted that there was a history of mental illness in the family. Uh, duh. Their uncle had committed suicide, and their cousin was still living in an asylum. They also believe that Christine's affection for her sister was based on family ties, not an incestuous relationship, as others had suggested. I think in that sort of a situation with that family, that those two things sort of went hand in hand. Yeah, you know, was... I can tell you, I don't have a close relationship with my sister, but I've never even once ran up to her and opened my shirt while screaming something at her. Yeah, Never once. That's, that's not a thing that's happened. Super creepy. It took the jurors only about 40 minutes to determine that the Papine sisters were indeed guilty of the heinous crime that they had been accused of. Leah, thought to be under the influence of her older sister, was given a 10-year sentence. Christine was not so lucky. She was initially sentenced to death on the guillotine. Although this sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment, the separation from Leah proved to be too much for Christine. Her Her condition deteriorated very rapidly once the two sisters were apart. She then experienced bouts of depression and madness, eventually refusing to eat. Prison officials transferred her to a mental institution, hoping she would benefit from professional help. Still separated from her sister, she continued to starve herself until she died. Of, they call it wasting away. On May 18th in 1937, Leah fared better than her sister, serving only eight years of a 10-year sentence. After she was released in 1941, she lived in a little town of Nantes, or Nantes, where she was joined by her mother. She assumed a fake identity and earned a livelihood as a hotel maid. Some accounts state that Leah passed away in 1982, but French film producer Claude Ventura claims to have discovered Leah living in a hospice center in France in 2000 while he was creating a documentary about the sisters. It appears that Leah went on to have a relatively normal life after she served her time. Mm. It's interesting, though, because the sisters were deemed sane and and fit to stand trial, but the psychological community had struggled and debated over a diagnosis for these two sisters. It is said that they suffered from shared paranoid disorder, which is a very unique, I think, sort of a case. It's believed yeah. to occur when groups or pairs of people are isolated from the world, developing paranoia, or paranoia in which one partner dominates the other. This is especially true of Leah, whose meek personality was overshadowed by the obstinate and dominant Christine. So did Leah actually exhibit, like, paranoia, paranoid behaviors because it seems no, like it seems there was as like though, a codependence with christine like she was very codependent on leah but it doesn't really sound like leah had that much well, going on and again this is we're not hearing all the facts and details about this particular case we're hearing i think from a third or fourth hand account of what was happened here we're not looking at the actual trial transcripts what concerns me a little bit as well is that during that particular time period There were very particular notions about women, about women killers, about women who showed signs of being dominant or violent, things like that. So I have a tendency to think that some parts may be exaggerated about these Mm -hmm. two women um, in many instances and that news agencies really in order to kind of drum up publication um, sales kind of dramatized or made this more than it really was. Artistic license. Yes. And then as well, a lot of people consider this murder to be the result of the exploitation of workers. 
So they considered the fact that the maids worked 14-hour days during this period of time with only a half day off each week. Basically, intellectuals were using this case to sort of show the oppressive struggle of the social classes during this period in time. Yeah, this, this was also very big in like the, like the time when the labor movements and like everybody was trying to think communism was the way out because... You know, we were in the Great Depression and everybody thought capitalism was the problem and that's why we got into the Depression and then yeah. the communists would be like, no, but if you just – everybody just is all equal, then we don't have any problems and that turned out great. So Yeah. It's a very gruesome case though and I have to wonder if Leah would have had any inclination towards violence if Christine hadn't been around. Mm-hmm. I have the tendency to yeah, think it, that it was all Christine. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like she was just like – the younger sister who was manipulated by her older sister. Yeah. Cause you know, like when you're the younger sister, you want to do things with your older sister. Like you want to, for me, it was like, you want to like the music she likes and you want to like be into the things that she's into. I mean that this could very well be something like that. And then on top of the stress of being a young woman that has to work all of those hours and have that much pressure and responsibility and stuff. It just, it sounds like a, like just an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, it's like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. It seems incredibly sad. And it's not a sort of a situation I think that um, I think anyone anticipated, but it really, I think, played out in a lot of large ways in the media and in plays and songs and and sort of the social media of that day. This became a main um, case of inspiration for the people. And then, Do we know anything about the older sister, Genevieve? Nope. There's not a lot of information. And I think during this period of time as well, crime in the newspapers, news stories about criminal acts, particularly those involving women, were just highly sensationalized. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. People, I mean, we think people are bad now, but like you hear cases of like that Vasalia axe murder case where the people tromped through the house and took souvenirs yeah. and pulled, you know, pieces of the skull out and took them as souvenirs. And I think that this sort of a thing was big news to them. It was their well, And this is also news story. like that time when they would show like graphic close-up pictures of mafia people that have been murdered. Oh, absolutely. I yeah, think like the camera would just like get right up in there. There were no regulations. Yeah. There were no controls over the violence and the graphic violence that they showed in the newspapers and in novels and right. things like that. And I believe as well that um, this article that I pulled from Wikipedia didn't necessarily address some of the other stuff um, in that I guess there was some slashing and some cutting of the legs and the back of the legs and the buttocks and things like that that just really mm-hmm. demonstrated, I think, some very, very severe mental issues on the part of both of these young ladies to create that kind of damage to somebody else. For sure. Interesting, interesting case. And you've got another one for us that is a case that played out around the same time period, but also was a huge media and crime influence for the time. What what do you have for us, Darcy? Yeah, so I have the trial of the century, um, which is not the OJ one. It's the it's the Lindbergh kidnapping. And so we're going to talk about Charles Lindbergh Jr. and of course Charles Lindbergh Sr. So a little bit of background. If you don't know, if you didn't learn this in your history class, in 1927, Charles Lindbergh became famous for making the first solo nonstop flight from New York City to Paris. And he flew in the, his plane was called the Spirit of St. Louis. And this was a really big deal because it wasn't the first attempt. Um, There was actually an award being offered, like a 
monetary prize if you could do this. And six men had died in three separate crashes making this attempt previously. And then in another separate crash, uh, three other men were injured. So this was a really big deal. So the previous crashes and deaths were people trying to complete it you know, more than one person in the cockpit. And his was a big deal because it was the first nonstop flight and it was, he, he completed it solo. As a result, he became world famous. He actually won the Medal of Honor because he was in the army at the time. Mm-hmm. And so they gave him the Medal of Honor, even though it's, that's typically a combat award. Congress that passed a special whatever. And then uh, he also was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. In 1928, he was Time Magazine's Man of the Year. And just two months after his flight, he was 25 years old when he did this flight. So just two months later, he wrote an autobiography in which he derided other pilots he met as womanizing barnstormers and that the ideal romance was stable and long-term with a woman with keen intellect, good health, and strong genes. Hmm. So what's the... What's the underlying in that is uh, Charles Lindbergh was a bit of a eugenicist. Um, he was. Why don't you first who, explain what what that is for the layperson? Yeah, so a eugenicist is somebody that thinks that you have to marry the right quote unquote stock in order to have good children, and that you have to control your genes and your family lines, and it's essentially a nice spin, putting a nice pretty ribbon on, on Nazism, uh, racism. <laughs> yeah, he um, was. I think the nicest way you could say it was he was in favor of appeasement um, and isolationism when it came to uh, Hitler and Nazi Germany. He w- didn't want us to get involved, but he also was like, hey, I mean, if they k- kill all the Jews, what? I mean, what's the problem, you know? Right. So if they create a better race of we, people, then how are we? I mean, <laughs> what's, what's the problem? Really the big deal at all? Like <laughs> one master race. I don't understand why everybody's in such a huff about this. Um, those are things that you didn't, that I didn't learn in my history class. Um, no, they of and, course don't put that in the history books. Yeah, it's not as not as fun. But anyway, so that's a little bit about Charles Lindbergh. So later that same year in 1927, he married Anne Morrow, and her father was a partner at J.P. Morgan and Company. That's how they met. It was because her father served as Charles Lindbergh's uh, financial planner. Okay, and he also was the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, and he invited Charles Lindbergh to a party in Mexico City, which is where he met his daughter, Anne. So they got married in May 27th of 1929 in Inglewood, New Jersey, and they went on to have six children, but we're only going to talk about the one. So Charles Lindbergh Jr. was the first kid that they had, and he was born on June 22nd, 1930, and around... 7.30 p.m. on March the 1st of 1932, the Lindbergh family nurse put Charles Jr. into his crib at their country estate. They lived in the city and then kind of were building this country estate. Around 10 o'clock that same night, the nurse discovered that he was missing from his crib. And so she alerts the parents. Anne Morrow had just gotten out of a bath and she, you know, tells her, and no, Charles Jr. is not with her, and she's, he, uh, he's not with Charles Sr. So they go back up to the room, and they find a ransom note in the baby's bedroom that was in an envelope on the windowsill. So Charles Sr. grabs his gun, and he goes to look around the grounds with the butler. And under the uh, window of the baby's room, they found impressions in the ground and pieces of a wooden ladder as well as a baby's blanket. And it doesn't say that it was like 
the ba- like Charles Jr.'s baby blanket, but that's the assumption. But it just didn't specifically say that. Because there's not going to be just like random baby blankets just hanging around. Well, my thought was like maybe the cadaver brought one. Just to kind of throw everyone to, off. Or to ca- to carry the baby and then dropped it somehow. But anyway, I mean, so I don't know. I'm I'm assuming... I think I'm probably just trying to read more into it than there is. So the butler immediately called the local city police and Charles Jr. calls his lawyer and the New Jersey State Police. And authorities were en route to the house within 20 minutes of uh, discovering him missing. Okay. So they did an extensive search around the home in the surrounding areas. And after midnight, a fingerprint expert examined the ransom note and the ladder. And they found no usable fingerprints or footprints. And there were no adult fingerprints even found in the baby's room. So even in places where witnesses admitted touching, they couldn't find any fingerprints. But they did find the baby's fingerprints. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know what, like, even if, like, the parents or the nurse was like, I did touch the windowsill, they couldn't find their fingerprints, which is peculiar. They, they go to read the ransom note, and this thing is a mess. It is full of spelling and grammatical errors and I'm just going to have to read it as it's intended to be read, and then we, we can post a picture of it uh, on the Instagram so you can see what it is. So the ransom note says, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or or for notify the police. The child is in good care, and that's actually spelled gut, like good care. Indication for all letters are the signature and three holes. And so at the bottom of this note were two interconnected blue circles surrounding a red circle. So it's kind of like a Venn diagram looking thing. And there's a hole punched through the red circle and then two more holes to the left and right. And we'll also post a picture of that. Okay. As soon as word gets out, hundreds of people converge on the Lindbergh estate, destroying any possible footprints evidence, kind of like the uh, Velisca axe murder. And a lot of prominent people offered their help because, he, like I said, this guy is a world-famous hero, you know. So we have a couple of the big names that were involved. H. Norman Schwarzkopf, who that name may sound familiar if you followed news in the 90s because his son was Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf of Gulf War One? Mm-hmm. But so he, this guy was um, the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, and William Donovan also offered his help, and he would later go on to create the OSS in World War Two, which later became the CIA. So, a couple big, big name, powerful people that were involved. Approximately thirty-eight thousand letters arrived at the Lemberg Estate, offering prayers and assistance, and then. Everybody's getting together and, and, you know, talking about who would do this. And speculation became that maybe this was committed by an organized crime figure and that the writer of the ransom note spoke German, which, again, when you see the ransom note, you'll kind of see because it is written like if you if German was your first language, you could kind of see how they would interpolate, make some of those words trying to figure out how to write English. So several organized crime figures, including Al Capone, spoke out from prison offering to help return the baby in exchange for money or legal favors, of course, because they don't have anything to do with it. But if people think we're involved, why don't we offer help and see if we can get out of prison? The day after the kidnapping, President Hoover was fined. And even though kidnappings were, at the time, still considered state crimes, the FBI was authorized to investigate the case. Because he was a national hero. If it was some Joe Schmo off the street, they wouldn't offer that. 
they would have been like, oh, sorry about Good your luck kid. With that. Um, yeah, so the Coast Guard, Customs, and Immigration Service, and the Washington, D.C. police were all told to be ready to offer their services in case they were needed. So they were pulling out all the stops for this isolationist eugenicist hero. New Jersey officials offered a $25,000 reward, and the Lindbergh family offered an additional $50,000. And in 2018 money, that would be about $1.3 million. Wow. So that's like a fuck ton for reward. Yeah. That's like a crazy amount for a reward. Even now, you don't see. On March 6th, a new ransom letter was mailed to the Lindbergh home, and it was postmarked from Brooklyn. And it had that signature of, like, the holes and the red circle and all of that. And in this note, it said the ransom was now $70,000. And a third ransom note, also postmarked from Brooklyn and containing the signature, was sent to the Lindbergh's lawyer. It stated that this, some guy named John Condon, should be the intermediary between the Limburgs and the kidnappers. And they requested notification through the newspaper that this third note had been received. And it contained instructions about the size of the box the ransom should come in and warn the family not to contact the police because ransom writing 101, don't contact the police. Who is John Condon? So he was a well-known Bronx personality and a retired school teacher. And he offered $1,000 if the kidnappers would turn the child over to a Catholic priest, which... Seems innocent enough back in 1932, but now I'd be like, mm, do we want to come to a Catholic priest? I don't know. Right. Um, but also, what what retired school teacher has $1,000 in 1933 to offer? That seems like a lot of money. So supposedly this letter was written by the kidnappers, and it authorized him to act as an intermediary. And I said that Charles Lindbergh it did accept this letter as genuine. Following the instructions, Condon... This kind of seems ridiculous to me, like, having an intermediary... He's just inserting himself. It's just the yeah. dumbest thing ever. Yeah, like, it's just this random... Pro- like, I, there's no information about whether or not he knew the Lindberghs. Like, it's just like, this guy's gonna act as an intermediary. And he's like, hey, I got this letter that says I can act as an intermediary. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, so, so he follows the instructions, and he placed an ad in the New York American saying, money is ready... And it was signed Jaffsey. And I don't know where the, that name came from. Huh. So a meeting with Jaffsey and a representative of the group that claimed to be the kidnappers was scheduled for late one night at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Okay. And according to Condon, the man sounded foreign, but he stayed in the shadows during the conversation. So Condon wasn't able to get a good look. The man did tell him a story. He said his name was John. He was a Scandinavian sailor part of a gang of three men and two women. The baby was unharmed, being held on a boat, and would only be returned for ransom. So, so the baby's on a boat, only going to be recovered yeah. if there's a, a ransom paid. Right, and so when Condon is like, mm, do you really have the baby, though? John says, you know, yeah. Trust me. Know, to prove that you we can have, trust me. Yeah, tr- <laughs> just, just trust me. I have the baby. I don't understand why you wouldn't trust me. To offer proof, he says that they're going to return the baby's sleeping suit. So then Condon asks... What the fuck is a sleeping suit? (laughs) I'm thinking it's like, you know, like the sleep sack thing that they put them in? But whatever that, the 1932 version of that was. Seriously, like us without children, like trying to answer these fucking questions. (laughs) What the fuck is a baby sleeping suit? I don't have any kids. I've got nothing. Desire to have kids. I have nothing to do with kids. (laughs) Okay, anyway, John character asks Condon, would I burn if the package were dead? And so the package being the baby. And then he 
But then he goes on to assure Condon that the baby actually still is alive, which mm, I don't know that I'm buying that. Anymore, right, but it know? seems like a smart move because if the baby's dead, then you're fucked. Right. So on March 16th, John Condon did receive a toddler sleeping suit and a seventh ransom note. And Charles Lindbergh did positively identify the sleeping suit. And Condon placed a new ad in the home news. And it said, the money is ready, no cops, no secret service. I come alone like last time. And on April 1st, Condon received a letter saying it was time for the ransom to be delivered. So the ransom was packaged in a custom-made wooden box and included gold certificates, which were about to be pulled from circulation. So they did all that, like, obviously in the hopes that later they would be able to identify the kidnappers because they would have gold certificates in this ornate box. The bills were not marked. So the the actual greenback bills were not marked, but their serial numbers were recorded by some of the detectives. And so on April 2nd, Condon was given a note by a random cab driver that he didn't know. And he met John and told him they'd only been able to raise $50,000. And John took the money and handed Condon a note saying the child was in the care of two innocent women. Make sure you say they're innocent, even though they have this kidnapped baby. So that was April 2nd. And then it's not until May 12th that a delivery truck driver pulled over to the side of the road about four and a half miles from the Lindbergh home. He got out to pee, which I read this and I'm like, oh, that's kind of how Heyman Lee's body was I know. I was just going to say. Like, and nobody seemed to really think that was suspicious. But anyway, um, so he gets out to pee and he discovers uh, Charles Jr.'s body. And his skull had been fractured, and the body was pretty decomposed, likely due to animals. And there was evidence of a hasty burial. And the nurse was the one who identified the baby from a shirt that she had made made for him. And the toes on his right foot kind of overlapped. And that's that's another way that she was able to identify him. So we know conclusively that it was Lindbergh's baby and not just a random baby, so they could take the Lindbergh baby. I think I heard that he may have had something to do with the kidnapping and murder himself because of the overlapping toes. And that was like a deformity. Interesting. And and so he wanted to, that what, that couldn't be part of his master race thing. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so, um, it did, it appeared that the, that Charles Jr. had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. And they kind of began speculating that, that when, they were bringing him out of the house, down the ladder. Maybe he hit his head on the ladder, and that's what fractured his skull. Or maybe they dropped him. Whoops. Or maybe they just dropped him, right? <laughs> it can be whole, hard to hold on to those slippery little suckers. I mean, especially when you're climbing down like a shabbily... I was just going to say, like that... That must have been super challenging, to hold a baby uh-huh. and climb down a ladder out of a window. Yeah. No, thank you. I can't climb down a ladder by myself, let alone carrying something fragile and precious and probably squirmy. Right. Um, so Charles Sr. insisted on uh, having Charles Jr. cremated, which, hmm. you know, would be another thing if you wanted to go down that conspiracy route. Uh, right. if he didn't want any further investigation. No autopsy, no. In June of 1932, officials began to suspect that the crime was committed by someone the family knew and trusted, but nobody in the family ever actually came under suspicion. So... Violet Sharp was a British household servant at the Morrow home, and I believe that this is, like, Anne Morrow's family. I don't think she worked in the Lindbergh home, but I could be wrong about that. But she had given contradictory information on her whereabouts the night of the kidnapping. Hmm. And 
when she was being questioned, it was reported that she was nervous and she appeared suspicious. Interesting. And on June 10th of 1932, she committed suicide by ingesting a silver polish that contained potassium cyanide just prior to her being questioned for the first, fourth time. What the actual fuck? Later on, of course, her alibi was confirmed and it was determined that the threat of losing her job and the stress of the questioning had commit, had driven her to commit suicide. Wow. Yeah. So John Condon's home was searched, but they didn't find anything to tie him to the crime. But for the next two years, he would visit police departments and promise to find this, quote, cemetery John that he met in the cemetery. He would do kind of weird stuff. Like, again, it's just stuff of, like, inserting himself and making this story kind of about him. Because he later agreed to appear in a vaudeville act regarding the kidnapping. Who does that? Right? And, I mean, he's a retired teacher. He's got to get his kick somewhere. And Liberty Magazine published a serialized account of his involvement under the title Jaff C. Tells All. So, I don't. this guy sounds pretty fucking suspicious to me, but yeah, that's kind of all there is about him. They can't really get anywhere investigating these suspects, and they're not getting any further information. So, Colonel Schwarzkopf. Uh, starts investigating the latter and this is super super cool but it also gets kind of like in the weeds but i think it's still really cool so he was able to trace the lumber in the ladder through local sources but he got no leads and so he decided to contact the usda forest service for a technical examination of the wood hmm. and they referred him to uh the forest products laboratory which is part of it's a federal laboratory but it's also part of the university of wisconsin in madison and he was referred to specifically talk to an Arthur Kohler. Our friend Arthur here, he had actually written a letter to Lindbergh's right after the kidnapping. He was one of those 38,000. Uh, he offered to help, but he never got a reply. He is a wood expert or was a wood expert at the United States Forest Products Laboratory. His area of research was uh, identification, cellular structure, and growth of wood. And through microscopic examination... Kohler determined the number of wood, uh, the number of knives that had planed the sides, top, and bottom surfaces of the cut wood, and determined that one of the side knives had left distinctive marks. So, with all this information about the growth rings and dimensions of the board and the wood, he produced a report that was sent to almost 1,600 mills in the region that dealt with that type of wood. It was like some type of pine. And by process of elimination, he further reduced this number to 25 mills, and using the number of knives and the face and edge cutters, rate of feed, and impressions on the ladder, he determined that the lumber company MG and JJ Dorn company at McCormick, South Carolina, had milled the wood used in the ladder. And he generated a list of probable lumber yards throughout the East that would have received this stock. And in 1933, a complete match between the ladder wood and a single shipment to one lumber yard was found at the National Lumber and Millwork company in the Bronx. So like all of this crazy stuff, and he was able to find where that wood that was made to um, build this ladder was bought. So they have this information. And then next they started tracking the ransom money because um, like I said, the, the gold certificates were being pulled out of rotation. So that was an intentional part of the ransom. So a pamphlet was created that had the serial numbers on the ransom bills and 250,000 copies were distributed to businesses primarily in the New York City area. By presidential order, all gold certificates were to be exchanged for greenbacks, which are just the regular dollar bills we use now, 
uh, on May 1st, 1933. And a few days before the deadline, a someone who gave his name as J.J. Faulkner of 537 West 149th Street brought in almost $3,000 in gold certificates to a Manhattan bank to be exchanged. But it wasn't until later that they realized these bills were part of the ransom. And then when they went back and looked, no one named Faulkner lived at that address. So obviously that was a fake identity. Over a 30-month period, a number of the ransom bills were spent throughout New York City, mainly along the route of the Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx with the east side of Manhattan. And this included a German-Austrian neighborhood called Yorkville. Remember, they thought the, um, the writer of the ransom note was German. And on September 18th, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom that had a New York license plate number written in the margins, and they traced the bill back to a gas station, and detectives learned that the station manager had written down the number because the customer was acting really suspicious, and he suspected it was counterfeit. So, like, he didn't know it was part of the ransom or anything. He was just like, this guy's fucking weird, and I think that maybe this is fake, so I'm going to write down this number. So they chased down the license plate, and it belonged to a Richard Bruno Hauptmann of the Bronx. He was an immigrant with a criminal record in Germany. Bruno gets arrested, and he's carrying a single $20 gold certificate and more than $14,000 of the greenback ransom money that was found in his garage. And during interrogation, of course, he says, the money isn't mine. It was left in a shoebox by a former business partner who also conveniently died after he went back to Germany. He also, he said he only discovered that there was money in the shoebox after learning of his friend's death, and he decided he was going to keep it because it was money owed to him from a business deal that they had previously made. Hmm. Further searches of the home revealed a notebook containing a sketch of a ladder similar to the one found at the scene, and they also found John Condon's telephone number and address written on a closet wall, which I don't know if that's a thing that you people used to do all the time. You couldn't find a sheet of paper so you wrote stuff on your wall and when they looked back into his history detectives found that bruno hauptman had been employed at the national lumber and millwork company and he had purchased lumber there less than a month after the receipt of the identified shipment which was just two months before the kidnapping he goes on trial here uh he was charged with capital murder the trial was called the trial of the century so i'm pretty sure this was the original trial of the century yeah, And then it was taken back when uh, O.J. killed his wife and Ron Goldman. So at trial, Arthur Kohler was able to match rail 16 of the ladder with a sawed-off floorboard in the attic of Hauptman's apartment. And he's, he was able to show that comparing the wood resulted in an exact match of the curvature, number, and the width of the growth rings. And there were four square-cut nail holes that, when the rail was repositioned as a floorboard and four nails were inserted into the holes, the size, spacing, and angle and depth of the holes fit, of the nails fit exactly in between these two boards. And according to Kohler, the chances of this exact set of circumstances occurring twice were about one in ten quadrillion. So based on this, this is really the only, you wouldn't even say it's concrete evidence, but this is really the only like forensic evidence that they had. So based on this and some other witness statements and things like that, Bruno Hauptman was convicted and sentenced to death and he was executed on April 3rd, 1936. But there's a lot of speculation that he either was innocent or that he wasn't the only one involved. And I tend to lead toward the fact that I think he's guilty. But I yeah. think that I think this John Condon guy may have also been involved. Duh. Like it just is such a random thing. So sketchy. He, he's so sketchy. 
Yeah, I don't know. It just seems very weird. And I don't I don't necessarily think that Charles Lindbergh had anything to do with it. He was a eugenicist, but I don't think he actually did anything with his kid. As a result of the kidnapping, uh, Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act. It's commonly called the Lindbergh Law, and it mm -hmm. makes transporting a victim across state lines a federal crime, which is interesting because there's no evidence that Lindbergh, that, that Lindbergh Jr. was ever taken across state lines. It seems like he died at the scene of the kidnapping and was kind of hastily buried. I guess you would you could argue that they crossed state lines with the intention of committing a crime. So that's the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping. Yeah, and I read a book, um, or I listened to a book when I was on my cross-country drive. It's I think it's just called 1927. And it's about all of these interesting things that happened in 1927. And it goes into this guy they used to basically match the ladder and the wood and all that stuff. And I thought that was really cool. And it's one of like the old school forensic techniques that that you don't hear a whole lot about. No. This is the point where we say goodbye. So long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions or comments, please keep them to yourself. No, just kidding. We love your emails. <laughs> Didn't think that was coming. Um, the BFD podcast at gmail.com. Darcy, what's our social media? We are at the BFD podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome, awesome. Please join us again next week when we talk more about some weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Say bye, Darcy. Oh, sorry. Bye. <laughs> okay. <laughs>